Hello and welcome. Um, my name is Leila Ferguson and I'm here with my colleague uh, Zainab Jihad and here, we're here to present Dermatology Snapshots, the May 2023 edition, volume 16. If you'd like to join our mailing list so that you can receive the editions directly to your inbox each month, please email us on our new email address admin at dermatologysnapshots.com. Right, so we've got a great edition for you this month. Um, our first paper is um, from Cornea, and I'll be uh, reviewing this one. So it is entitled Dupilumab-induced and Tralokinumab-induced and Belantumab-Mafadotin-induced adverse ocular events, incidents, etiology, and management. And it was in Cornea. So we chose this paper um, because monoclonal antibodies, dupilumab and tralokinumab, are third-line treatments for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. But data on adverse ocular events, incidents, manifestations, proposed mechanisms, and treatments are varied relating to study heterogeneity. This was a narrative review that identified 24 RCT and nine case series and reports in English between January 2016 and November 2021. And they were all discussing adverse ocular events associated with three monoclonal antibodies using PRISMA 2020 flow diagram. They found that the incidence of adverse ocular events in patients receiving dupilumab or tralokinumab ranged from 3.6 to 31% in dupilumab and 2% to 13.1% in tralokinumab. Conjunctivitis was the most reported adverse ocular event and was much more frequently seen when dupilumab was prescribed for atopic dermatitis compared to other type 2 immunity-driven diseases, asthma and rhinosinusitis. Most adverse ocular events were mild and manageable, and only three patients in the reported studies stopped treatment because of their adverse ocular events. Two of these were on dupilumab and one on tralokinumab. Risk factors for adverse ocular events include being older, male, more advanced and long-standing atopic dermatitis disease, and other atopic conditions. Management options included warm compresses, artificial tears, and antihistamine and mast cell stabilizer eye drops for mild adverse ocular events, corticosteroid or calcineurin inhibitors when needed for more severe cases. Liberal application of topical tacrolimus to lids and lid margins, as well as reducing dupilumab dosing schedules to monthly are also considered. So there were some limitations. There was selection bias of only human studies in English over a five-year period. There was no clear demonstration of study quality assessment. And the se severity of atopic dermatitis can be a confounder as it itself can cause conjunctivitis. Belantamab mafadotin is excluded from discussion as it is not used in dermatology. So what was the take-home message? Authors propose that careful monitoring of patients on dupilumab and tralokinumab for adverse ocular events is advisable, especially conjunctivitis and superficial keratitis. Comprehensive assessment and close liaison with ophthalmology can guide treatment and avoid discontinuation of therapy where alternatives remain limited.
So moving on to our next article and handing over to you, Zainab. Great. So this is uh, risk factors of progression uh, from discoid lupus to severe systemic lupus erythematosus, a registry-based cohort study of 164 patients. And this was published in JAD. Uh, so the reason we chose this paper is discoid lupus is a common subtype, as we know, of cutaneous lupus. Uh, and knowing which patients have a high risk of developing SLE is, is quite important for defining management and follow-up. So in terms of this study uh, design, this was a registry-based cohort study. Uh, and the aim of it was to identify risk factors for progression from DLE to what they call severe systemic SLE or severe systemic uh, lupus. Um, and so they, the shorthand they use here is SSLE. Uh, and this was defined as one, having at least one of uh, SLE, fever, serositis, uh, lupus, nephritis, neuropsychiatric manifestation, autoimmune hemolysis, uh, or autoimmune thrombocytopenia. And number two, uh, the need for a, for a specific treatment with systemic corticosteroids, immunosuppressant drug and or hospitalization related to SLE, and that's defining a severe flare. So that's what um, what they defined as severe SLE. Uh, and so in terms of their main findings, so they included 30 patients with DLE SSLE, uh, and they also include 134 patients with DLE who didn't develop severe SLE. Uh, and so this, they found several risk factors um, that were important, but they took the three um, that gave the, that they used to create a scoring system, uh, and this sort of gave the highest sensitivity specificity. And the three that they selected were number one, age under twenty five years at the time of DLE, DLE diagnosis, and they gave that one point. The odds ratio for that was two point eight. Um, phototype five to six, uh, uh, they gave one point uh, if you had that, and the odds ratio there was two point seven. And then anti nuclear antibody titers of one over uh, 320 or more um, and the odds ratio for that was 15 and for that uh, they gave five points and so of those with a score of zero at baseline none of them progressed to severe SLE uh, whereas a score of six or more was associated with a risk of approximately 40 percent. Now there were some other significant risk factors which weren't factored into the scoring system and we, these were having generalized DLE which we all recognize as a risk factor, Raynaud's, arthralgias, and lymphopenia. Uh, so in terms of li limitations and applicability, uh, this, this uh, score, scoring system they created, they gave a sensitivity of 73% and a specificity of 76% for developing uh, severe SLE. Um, uh, it's quite easy to apply. It's only based on three parameters. So that would take you know a few seconds to minutes in clinic. Um, but this is a retrospective study based on registry data uh, and patient numbers are limited um, and it also only focuses on severe systemic SLE. So what's the take home message? So the proposed clinical score for risk of progression from DLE to severe SLE is easy to apply and it does give some quantification of risk of progression from DLE. But there are several key risk factors that weren't incorporated and we should also take these into account. So that's uh, the summary of that paper. Well, now we're going to move on to our next paper, which I think, Leila, you're going to present. Great, thanks, Zainab. So the next paper is taken from JAMA Dermatology, and it's entitled Efficacy of Methotrexate Alone versus Methotrexate plus Low-Dose Prednisolone in Patients with Alopecia Areata Totalis or Universalis, a two-step double-blind randomized controlled trial. 
So we chose this paper because alopecia areata totalis and universalis are challenging to treat, but profoundly impactful on patients. JAK inhibitors are not yet available on the NHS, and so we must continue to consider other options. So in terms of study, aim and design, this was a two-step, double-blind, multi-centre, randomised controlled trial. Adults with recalcitrant alopecia areata totalis or universalis of chronic duration received either methotrexate alone or placebo for the first six months. Then, those with less than 25% hair regrowth followed an extension with either methotrexate and placebo or methotrexate and prednisolone for the next six months. Low-dose prednisolone equated to 20 milligrams a day for three months and then 15 milligrams a day for three months. The methotrexate dose was 25 milligrams per week. Outcomes were assessed by a blinded um, uh, investigator using the severity of alopecia tool score, the SALT score. So what were the main findings? So after six months, only three of the 45 patients receiving methotrexate alone had a good response, equating to more than 25% hair regrowth. At 12 months, nine patients in total had complete or almost complete hair regrowth. Seven of these were on methotrexate and prednisolone. One had only had methotrexate and one had been on placebo throughout. Of those randomized to prednisolone in the next in the second six months, 20% met this target. And this went up to 31% of those who had had the full 12 months of methotrexate plus six months of prednisolone. So where there was hair regrowth, it usually started after three months of beginning the combination therapy. And a little sub-analysis showed us that seven of those with complete hair regrowth were followed up for a mean of 70 months, and half of these had some sustained hair regrowth, and half had reduced treatment doses. So in terms of limitations and applicability, 30 patients dropped out of this study. Significant, but unsurprising, particularly in those patients without hair regrowth. Included patients had chronic recalcitrant um, alopecia areata totalis and universalis, unlike other studies where patients are selected only if they have had previous regrowth episodes. The final numbers receiving methotrexate prednisolone combination were small, and 88 out of 89 included patients had alopecia areata universalis, only one had totalis. We think 25 milligrams of prednisolone daily is still a relatively significant dose, but it is much lower than other studies looking at steroids for alopecia. So what's the take-home message? This study suggests that methotrexate and low-dose prednisolone combination may be helpful in long-standing alopecia areata totalis and universalis, even after failure of pre previous systemic treatments. Methotrexate acts as a steroid sparing agent in this case, limiting the adverse effects of the corticosteroids. JAK inhibitor research included cases of alopecia totalis and universalis, along with their plaque type alopecia cases in their analyses, and their response rates despite this were not dissimilar to those reported here, 
So we think these results are quite encouraging. Long-term sustainability with prednisolone, however, remains an issue. So moving on to our next study, um, back over to you, Zainab. That's great, thank you. So this isotretinoin exposure and risk of inflammatory bowel disease, a systematic review with meta-analysis and trial sequential analysis. And this was published in the American Journal of Clinical Dermatology. Uh, so the reason we chose this paper is that the link between isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease has been discussed quite a lot, but recently there's been renewed interest in this association. Um, and so we thought it'd be uh, useful to include this, uh, this study. So the study aim in design, uh, well, the aim was to evaluate whether isotretinoin exposure is associated with IBD. Uh, and they did a systematic review of case control and cohort studies with a random effects model meta-analysis. In terms of the main findings, so overall they included eight studies and that totaled two and a half million participants uh, in total included. The meta-analysis found no association between isotretinoin exposure and IBD. The pooled odds ratio was 1.01. Uh, and there was no increased odds for IBD in patients previously exposed to isotretinone. So that's quite important too. Now, in terms of limitations and is it applicable? Um, so the subgroup analysis based on gender and age was uh, they couldn't perform it due to a lack of relevant data. Um, and the generalizability of the results is limited by the origin of the studies. So the take home message here is that we are reassured by the findings of this study, which does confirm the widely held view that there is no significant association between isotretinoin and IBD. Uh, so that, um, you know, we can prescribe this and continue our usual prescribing practices. So moving on to our next paper. Um, great. Thanks, Zainab. So um, next, we're going to look at a paper entitled Atrophic Papulosis. Kolmeyer-Dagos disease in children and adolescents, a cross-sectional study and literature review. And this was in the JEADV. So what is atrophic papulosis? Atrophic papulosis, otherwise known as Kolmeyer-Dagos disease, or just Dagos disease, is a rare thromboobliterative microangiopathy of unknown pathogenesis, which is categorized as benign, if limited to the skin, or malignant if there is systemic involvement such as GI, CNS or cardiac. Typical onset is between the ages of 20 and 50 years and generally it has so far been considered rare in children. So what was this, this study aim and design? This was a retrospective single centre review based on the International Dagos Disease Registry data looking to characterise the clinical features of the uh, 19 children with atrophic papulosis in their cohort. And this, this represented 20% of their total registered cases. So what were the main findings? Among the 19 patients with disease onset in childhood, the average age of onset was six, five years. And there was a slight male predominance, which is the opposite to what's seen in adults. Systemic involvement was more common in children than it was in, in adults, with 79% of the children having malignant atrophic papulosis. CNS was the most common extracutaneous system, followed by GI tract. Family history and prognosis was equivalent in adult and paediatric groups. The average mortality was a staggering 32%, despite a median follow-up of only 2.4 years. 
and the median survival time amongst those who died was 15 months. So how applicable is this? Well, this is the first analysis of paediatric atrophic papulosis. Previously, we would have only relied on case reports. So although it's only 19 children, it is still quite significant. It is, however, retrospective. What's the take-home message? Well, this is the first large study of this rare disease and how it affects children. It is perhaps not as uncommon in children as previously thought, and there are significant variations between childhood and adult onset cases. We should think of it in children with papular lesions that resolve, leaving porcelain atrophic lesions with a telangiectatic rim. So moving on to our next paper. Right, so this is, uh, bear with me for this lengthy title. This is Ambiguous Melanocytic Lesions, a retrospective cohort study of incident and outcome of Meltump, which is a melanocytic tumour of uncertain malignant potential, and Sampus, superficial atypical melanocytic proliferation of uncertain significance in the Netherlands. Uh, and this was recently published in JAD. Uh, so the reason we chose this paper is because ambiguous histological lesions, namely Mel Thompson and Sampus, pose a particular clinical challenge. Um, you know, we want to know how should we manage these and what should we tell patients? So in terms of the study aim and design, this was a retrospective analysis using a Dutch nationwide pathology data bank, uh, and a minimum of three-year follow-up period was required. So in terms of the main findings, 3,642 lesions received a final diagnosis of Meltump or Sampus. So in terms of Meltump, that was 1685 uh, and Sampus 1957, so fairly similar. Uh, and there was a medical history of melanoma in 14.8% of Meltump and 23% of Sampus. In total, and this is the key figure here, 44 of 2,692 lesions, so only 1.6%. Um, showed evidence of local recurrence, local progression to melanoma or metastatic behavior. In over half of these cases, the diagnosis of Meltump and Sampus was retrospectively made during reassessment of a previously diagnosed benign lesion after local recurrence or progression had already occurred. So that's quite interesting. Uh, and the median time to recurrence or metastasis ranged from five months to 98 months. Follow-up was up to 179 months. So limitations, is it applicable? Well, this is the largest published study of Meltump Sampus, and it really does provide some important prognostic guidance. The incidence of progression is much lower than previous smaller studies. Uh, and this was a retrospective pathology databank study. So that is an important limitation. Follow-up went uh, to 15 years, up to 15 years. Uh, and some patients were retrospective diagnosed after the initial label of benign, uh, as we've mentioned in the results. So what's the take home message? Well, this is the largest study to date assessing the outcomes of Meltump Sampus. Reassuringly, the 1.6% reported risk of progression is lower than previous smaller studies. Uh, and this is important when deciding on management of uh, these patients and advising on prognosis. So uh, moving on to uh, our next study. Thanks, Zainal. That's a very uh, clinically applicable paper, isn't it? Um... So uh, the next one is a perspective piece, and this is taken from the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's entitled Digital Minimalism, a Treatment for Clinician Burnout. So evidence shows that expansion of electronic health records has reduced bedside time, 
with the patient, increased work after work, and is associated with increasing burnout. Authors here criticise the current maximalist approach for an enabling and always-on mentality with constant streams of interruptions which are undifferentiated for urgency. COVID-19 and the associated increase in messages from patients and the use of telemedicine has worsened the problem, the authors argue. New technology systems are adopted haphazardly without proactive consideration of the cumulative impact, with documentation requirements reportedly unnecessary and burdensome. Electronic records generally involve excessive duplication. Authors propose that a shift in approach to improve patient care and reduce clinician burnout is warranted. They made various suggestions and we really liked the idea of setting boundaries for the use of different messaging systems to enable more uninterrupted work time and the potential for artificial intelligence and speech recognition technology to reduce the burden of note creation. We liked this idea because we see snapshots as akin to this approach, endeavouring to improve access to evidence that might affect patient care within the context of our busy clinical schedules. Back over to you, Zainab. Uh, so we're just going to finish on two short summaries. Uh, the first one is nicotinamide for skin cancer, chemo prevention and transplant recipients. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So I think many of us have been awaiting the results of this study to see if the effects of nicotinamide um, are similar in organ transplant recipients as they were um, in the sort of normal population studies. Um, and so this was a phase three study with a one-to-one -one ratio of organ transplant recipients uh, who had at least two keratinocyte cancers in the past five years. And they were randomized to receive either 500 milligrams of nicotinamide or placebo twice daily for two months. Skin checks were performed three monthly. Uh, and the primary endpoint was the number of new keratinocyte cancers during the 12-month intervention period. So overall, 158 participants were recruited. At 12 months, there were 207 new keratinocyte cancers in the nicotinamide group and 210 in the placebo group. So very similar numbers, and the rate ratio was 1. Um, so there was, and there was also no significant uh, differences uh, between the groups in terms of SCC and BCC counts, AK counts, or quality of life scores uh, uh, observed. And so, you know, this um, this is different from the other studies that were previously published in in the general population. The second short summary is baricitinib uh, for systemic lupus erythematosus, a, a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled phase three tri trial, and that's SLE BRAVE-1. So the SLE BRAVE-1 and 2 studies were recently published in The Lancet, uh, and this was a multi-center, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, parallel group phase three study, uh, and they looked at baricitinib for SLE. So the primary endpoint was a proportion of patients reaching an SLE responder index uh, four uh, response at week 52. Uh, so this is SRI4 response. Uh, and they recruited 760 participants who were randomized. Um, and the primary endpoint was reached. But importantly for dermatologists, one of their secondary outcomes, which was uh, a mean reduction, 50% uh, or more mean reduction in Clasi activity score, this was not reached. So there's no significant difference between the placebo and baricitinib group for this outcome. Uh, and that's it. So that's our summary for this month. We hope you've enjoyed it. 
Um, you can find the newsletter uh, online and um, we will see you next month. See you next month. Thanks for listening.